Glee, Deadwood, Californication, Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Spaceballs, Mississippi Burning, The Grifters, Where the Day Takes You, The Insider, and he's also co-writer of the great Talking Heads comedy, True Stories. Um, before listening to this bonus episode, I encourage you to go and check out the IMDb listing for one Stephen Topolowski. And I know that Directors Club, you know, we talk about directors, primarily. Um, but I am almost as equally interested in acting, uh, despite never having the courage to try it myself. Uh, I've, you know, had the pleasure of interviewing Martin Donovan fairly recently, who starred in a film that was pretty significant to uh, me being enamored with independent cinema with Hal Hartley's Trust. But uh, even going earlier than that, uh, Stephen Tobolowski, he starred in uh, quite a few movies that I adore. Primarily, I'd say like my top three would be Groundhog Day, Memento, and Sneakers. Um, we're going to touch upon two out of the three of those. And this is one guest where you don't want to interject. You want him to just go off and do his thing because he does it so beautifully and gracefully and with elegance. Um, and that's just it. It's it, it. I let him tell his stories in the same way you hear on his podcast because that is just exactly how you should experience um, a, a, an interesting, enlightening discussion with one person that... You know, you, you, you see in a lot of different things, and you recognize, but when you actually talk to the man himself, you are sort of, not necessarily taken aback, but you're just, um, you're like almost intoxicated with um, the power and the, and the true essence of language and thought and memory all sort of colliding, not colliding, that's probably a negative connotation, but just uh, sinking in just kind of like uh, harmony in a very poetic way. Like Stephen talks about poetry, and in a way, I think maybe Stephen Tobolowsky has mastered the poetry of conversation. So enough with me rambling on and on about, uh, you know, how you know exciting this is for me to share with you and how great it was to talk to him, both uh, before and after the interview. <laughs> it was just wonderful, and I can't say enough. And I wish we could have talked about tons and tons and tons and tons of things, but it would have been a nine-hour podcast. <laughs> because, honestly, I would want to talk to him about many more endeavors uh, from the past and present and future, it seems like. So we'll touch upon all that. But primarily, this is a, a mostly a reflection on the great Harold Ramis and my favorite movie of his, Groundhog Day. They say we're young and we don't know. We won't find out until we grow. Well, I don't know if all that's true. Cause you got me, baby, I got you. I got you, baby. I got you, baby. So, I've talked about how movies change my life in the same way that music and sports have changed other people's lives. 
I've gone on and on about specific titles from my childhood, which led me to become passionate about film. Um, I've yet to bring up a couple of other significant contributions, including a VHS tape given to me by my aunt in 1985 for Christmas, which contained copies of both Ghostbusters and Cloak and Dagger. Well, we all know that Ghostbusters is a classic. Um, And there are two other movies that, to this day, bring me immense joy in rewatching them. And I tend to do that at least once a year. And why they're so significant to me is because I saw them in the theater with my father. The first was Sneakers, starring Robert Redford, but co-starring Dan Aykroyd, and my favorite actor when I was a kid, uh, River Phoenix, too. And I'm sure by now my guest is inundated with requests for him to say the word passport. (laughs) (laughs) But I I digress. The second film, and I brought it up fairly recently for good reason, is Groundhog Day, directed by the late great Harold Ramis. And about a year and a half ago, I wrote an email to my guests about how watching both of these movies with my father, who was actually not the biggest movie buff, um, allowed us to bond in ways that kind of shaped my personality to some degree. Our senses of humor were very similar, but we really loved the technological surveillance wizardry of sneakers and, of course, the warmth and humanity of Groundhog Day. And in a way, both movies are not only amongst my absolute favorites, but they left you know some kind of uh, imprint about the power of the shared experience with those you love. And I remember specifically leaning over to my dad during Groundhog Day, saying, where have I seen that insurance salesman before? And he replied with, he played Werner Brandis in Sneakers, which we'd seen a couple of times (laughs) uh, regularly. So, the link between two of my favorite movies has starred in a plethora of TV shows and movies, over 200 of them, as a matter of fact. It's hard to know where to begin, Uh, And expressing my pleasure in talking with one of the best character actors and storytellers out there who has one of my favorite podcasts called The Tobolowski Files. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good to to be here. Good to hear... uh you know, all those stories conjure up my stories. That's what that's what kind of happens. Hearing hearing about you and your dad. That that kind of chokes me up. Yeah. I man, hearing you tell, you know, early on in the podcast stories about your mother, I I, I had to actually pull over to the side of the road because I was tearing up. And um consistently throughout the podcast I I've heard incredible stories and you know you're turning them um, into, into into a book, and all sorts of endeavors have spawned from the podcast, and it's really exciting to hear um, about other you know adventures that you're going on um, as a storyteller. Um, but I know by now you're most recognized as Ned from Groundhog yeah, Day. Definitely, yes. <laughs> and. I, I definitely encourage people to check out the Tobolowski Files, where you have an extended uh, discussion about what it was like working uh, on that film. It's it's a little bittersweet to to uh, start the discussion here because we lost a great one, 
and he's someone I grew up with, and you've had the pleasure of creating one of your most iconic roles with Harold Ramis. I'm just interested in hearing a little bit more about working with him to sort of celebrate his memory and spirit. Yeah, I, I, uh, there's no good way of hearing bad news, Mm -hmm. but the internet has created an entire new, uh, entire new category of ways you can hear bad news. I heard about, about Harold Ramis's passing. I was writing. It was early in the morning and I got an email from Slate. Uh, dot com, in which I've written a few stories for Slate. And it was John Swansburg, who's uh, one of the editors there. And he said, Stephen, we wanted to know if you'd write a piece for Slate. I'm sure you're upset over what's happened with, with Harold Ramis. And of course, at that particular point, I go cold, uh, the blood drains from my head, my knees start shaking. And I go over to my browser and click on it and find out that the news had come out 30 minutes beforehand that Harold Ramis had passed away. And I was so upset. My wife was in the backyard at the time, and I remember I just ran from my computer, and she said, what's wrong, honey? What's wrong? And I said, Harold Ramis just died. And Slate, of course, needed, like all these people, (laughs) news, news, Travels yeah. fast, but it's over fast as well. It, it's like the trip to Granny's. It, it's, it's over and it's done. And so I had to write the story within a few hours and send it back to Slate. And there's an interesting and positive thing about this is that you usually end up writing what's instinctual. Uh, it's like poker. You think it long, you think it wrong. And so I came up with these few Things about Harold Ramis that I recall. I remember on the set, I asked him if I was overdoing it. <laughs> As Ned, oh come on, never, never. And and he he smiled and put his hand on my shoulder and said, "Stephen, uh, you are the spice in the stew. In comedy, there's stew." And there's the spice in the stew. Bill is the stew, so he has to play it safe. You're the spice in the stew. Have fun. Uh, while we were shooting one of the street scenes, Harold Ramis came up to me and for no reason at all began a conversation saying, you know, Stephen, to be a professional actor is impossible. No one has ever done it. You can't do it alone. The only way anyone has succeeded is if they have four heroes in their life that have helped them. And he said, these heroes come from nowhere. We don't expect them to arrive, but they're there nonetheless. And they're the ones who lead us to, to being successful. And at the time he was telling me this, I had no idea he was one of my four. Uh, certainly before I did Groundhog Day, I was just known as the bald guy. And after Groundhog Day, I was known as the bald guy in Groundhog Day, which made a huge, huge difference in my career. Uh, people have asked me all the time, and I think it's a very worthy question, because you don't often have the chance to be in a classic. You, you don't know it at the time. People have said, what was it like being in one of the great comedies of all time, one of the great classics? Did you know 
That's one. Were you aware? Were you cognizant that this was going to be one of the great comedies of all time? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, when when they gave me the script, it seemed like a good script, but not outstanding. It it was a script that was very much of the time. If you could cast your mind back to that period in history, there were a lot of slacker comedy sort of that featured Bill. Bill Murray in situations where he had no consequences. That that's what Bill always did best. He was kind of the wild and crazy guy who who basically went by his own rules. Uh and we all loved it and we all laughed at it and that was Groundhog Day. But once we started filming the movie, I, I believe Bill and I were shooting that first street scene the first day of shooting. I think that was the first day of Groundhog Day when we began shooting. That, hello, oh, Phil, this is me, Ned, Ned Ryerson. Uh, the first day of shooting, something – well, well, I had a weird event happen to me. I had a weird event happen to me I will share with you. Um. We're starting to shoot, and it's the first first scene of the movie, and it's close to dawn, about 6.30 in the morning. We were gathering out in the street in Woodstock, Illinois, and a crowd of several hundred of the townsfolk had gathered to be an audience to watch us shoot. It was a big event for them, and standing at the front of the crowd was someone I knew from my past. It was David Nichols, and I... I'm standing there and David Nichols is looking at me and he gives me a thumbs up. Now, the last time I had seen David Nichols before this was when I was doing Great Balls of Fire in Memphis, Tennessee. David Nichols was the art director on that film. And he was there when my wife Ann and I, not at the wedding, but he was there when Ann and I got married. He was there in the hotel and Ann and I had our honeymoon at the Radisson Hotel. (laughs) In in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, not a lot of frills there, folks. If if you're looking for the radish, you do get free cocktail weenies and nuts at happy hour, but that's about it. The time before that I saw David Nichols was my first day in Los Angeles coming out to be an actor. And David Nichols called me up on the phone and said he was working as an art director on the film New York, New York, Would I Like to Come and Have Lunch with Him? And I came and had lunch with David with Robert De Niro, Liza Minnelli, and Martin Scorsese. (laughs) That was my first day in L.A. And I do believe Robert De Niro even looked at me. Uh, Well, okay. He didn't really look at me. I think he wanted the salt. And, and he kind of looked in my direction, and then he decided it was not heart healthy, and he turned away. By the way, as a side to this story, aside to this story, just put a comma here or even a colon. Last week, I had an event happen in my life that is, you know, every actor dreams of. They called me in to read a part uh, at the table read of – uh, midnight Run 2, uh, an, another Midnight Run, and I was reading the Joey Panleone part, and I had a scene with Robert De Niro. 
he was sitting right across from me, and he looked at me with that Robert De Niro look and says, fuck you, fuck you, you fucking piece of stupid fucking excrement. And I got to look at Robert De Niro and say, fuck me, no, fuck you, Jack, fuck you, Jack, you should get on your fucking knees and kiss my fucking ring to even have a fucking job, Jack. So, okay, I have climbed the mountain, right? Okay, nice. we'll remove the colon and go on with the story. So I've had that moment with Robert De Niro. Okay, but this was my first moment with Robert De Niro and David Nichols. Going back the first time I saw David Nichols in my life, I was 15 years old. I was doing a one-act, The Miser, for my uh, high school one-act play competition. And our speech teacher, Mary Curtis, brought in David Nichols, who was a big star in Dallas at the time, big star in theater, uh, to help coach us as to how to do this. And it was David Nichols who gave me my first lessons in comedy. He was telling me about, you know, hit your beat, stop, wait, the comic pause, uh, hit, hit the, be still when you tell your jokes, move on. And it was David Nichols when I was 15 that gave me my first lesson in comedy. And now here I am X number of years later on the street. And there David Nichols is for the fourth time in my life. I've saw this man giving me the thumbs up at the beginning of our scene in Groundhog Day. And for some psychic spiritual sort of reason, I thought he had just blessed us. And and we we had an amazing scene, uh, amazing time. Getting getting back to Harold Ramis, the the other apostrophe I had started. How did we know it was a good film during that first week? Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin threw away about half the script. Maybe maybe I'm overstating. More like a third of the script. And they got together and they said, what are we doing here? Uh, what, are we, what are we really telling? We are telling the story of how we use the time of our life. And they threw away all these crazy, wild incidents with Bill and all the silly, funny, goofy stuff that are in every Bill Murray movie at the time. And they threw it away and they began writing. And they began adding what we know as the act three of the movie of Bill saving the kid from the tree and helping the women from the uh, – taking the piano lessons and uh, helping the mayor who's choking on the stake and trying to save the old man's life and he can't. And all of these elements of the movie that we now identify that have raised Groundhog Day from just being a funny movie with Bill Murray, which I might add – performing one of the great comedic performances of all time. It's Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Absolutely. It is a stunning performance of such emotional breadth and width and depth and such amazing. And I could talk about that in a little bit too. But he started throwing away big chunks of the script and we started getting these pages literally hot off the press and we would hold these pages and we would start reading the green rewrites and we were going like oh my goodness we are in something amazing you you could just tell that the script was and ordinarily there are a million you know from movies there are a million ways a movie could go wrong and when they start doing rewrites after you start shooting uh, about 999 times out of a thousand 
it is disaster. It means they are trying to fix something that can't be fixed that they should have fixed months ago. But in the case of Groundhog Day, they took what was a good, funny Bill Murray movie and turned it into a work of spiritual comedy, a great art. And it's the movie, and that is what has made the movie endure. It, it is really remarkable. Uh, just, just a moment as to why Bill Murray is so good in that movie. In any comedy, you got the schlemiel and you got the schlamazel. If uh, to use your proper Jewish terms, you got the guy who spills the soup, which is the schlemiel, and you got the schlamazel, the guy who gets the soup spilled on him. In this movie, Bill plays both. Mm-hmm. He alternates. Now, when you are the stew, you have to play it sterile. When you are the spice in the stew, you have fun. Bill Murray in this movie effortlessly moves from being the the stew like in his scenes with me, in which he is every man and he is stalked by crazy man, me. And in the very next scene, he's in the diner where Andy McDowell becomes us, becomes every man. And Bill is there with all the food in front of him and he's eating everything and drinking the coffee out of the pot. He effortlessly slips from being the every man to being wild man and we don't even feel the difference. We don't even feel the difference because his performance has such kind of spiritual breath. It incorporates both of them. Uh, I have to put this one thing in about Harold Ramis. I have to. Because it happened the first week. It's part of my piece that I wrote for Slate. But it is symbolic of what Harold Ramis was and what he is and what he will always be. At the end of that first week, we were shooting a gigantic set piece scene. It was the scene in which Bill Murray discovers that time has begun to move again. No, no, I'm sorry. It's when he discovers that time has stopped for him Mm -hmm. and he realizes he has no consequences. And this is what the scene was. Bill is in his room at the end and suddenly he thinks, I have a feeling that time has stopped and I could do anything I damn well please. And so Bill Murray gets, it's a series of scenes where Bill Murray gets spray paint and spray paints uh, like gang stuff on the wall. (laughs) Then he like takes a razor and cuts his hair off into a mohawk. Then he gets a chainsaw and starts chainsawing the entire room in half. And anybody who knows anything about movies, you know how expensive that scene was to shoot because just the toupee for Bill having a mohawk costs like 10 grand. Uh, anything you chainsaw in two, you have to have a double for, for when you shoot it from a different angle or if you want to get a second take, it has to be restored. Any paint on the wall has to be cleaned up, et cetera, et cetera. Not, it, the scene took three days to shoot. Uh, it is near the beginning of the shoot when the studio is looking over the shoulder of everything that's going on in their movie as to whether money is being well spent or if it's being wasted. Harold Ramis shot this entire scene with Bill, three days of it. He shot it, he looked at it, and he threw it away. (laughs) And he changed it to Bill Murray is about to go to bed. He's lying in bed. He's taking a note with pencil behind his ear. He's putting the pencil to the bedside and he gets a notion. 
and he breaks the, breaks the pencil in two, puts one half on the radio, one half on the bedside table, goes to sleep, cut to Sonny and Cher in the morning. You know, six o'clock, rise and shine, campers. Bill Murray wakes up, looks to his side. The pencil is whole. When I saw that in the audience filled with real people, the audience gasped. And this this displays, one, Harold Ramis's courage to tell the story the way he was going to tell it, his ability to create visual poetry that is so simple that we don't even recognize it as poetry. But he knew how to shoot comedy and how to shoot a movie and how to make the visual statement. That is who he is in terms of the eternal uh, thank you we will always be giving him for his films. Completely agree. And the one thing I love about Groundhog Day and, you know, in a broader comedy, we would have had an explanation or, you know, we would have had something goofy (laughs) about like, why is this happening to me? You know, but the best thing about it to me is it's not explained. It just happens. And let me uh, put an addendum in there. Sure. That scene was in the movie. The scene was in the movie where Bill was at his radio station in Pittsburgh or wherever he was, and he insults a woman who works there who is from the islands, Mon. You know, she's like from the islands. And so she works some dark magic on him and puts a spell on him, and that scene was in the movie. And another example of Harold Ramis and his genius is he cut that scene out. He replaced black magic with real magic. Yeah. And it, need, it <laughs> needed no explanation. Yeah. It's what makes it great. Yeah, the moment my dad and I walked out of it, I actually said that could be like a Frank Capper movie for my generation yes, and for yeah. future generations. Yeah, for sure. Completely, completely. And, and what is it? What is it? Let me ask you. What is it that makes a Frank Capra movie a Frank Capra movie? Well, I would say that it just captures the you know the spirit of who we are and our humanity, um, but it also has that you know especially it's a wonderful life. It's it's dark, so it it manages to capture the light and the dark of, of you know being who you are and celebrating uh, humanity. And I think that's the best thing about. It. I'll, you know, even something like Stewart Saves His Family, which could have been a really broad SNL comedy, Ramis was able to interject his brand of spirituality and humanity in almost everything he did, especially Groundhog Day. I could not agree with you more. It To me, the big mistake people always make about Capra films, and it's the one thing Harold Ramis was able to do in the less broad comedy. I mean, he doesn't necessarily do this in Caddyshack, but in uh, the less broad comedies is that Capra films always have the darker elements of humanity. Mm -hmm. And everybody attributes Capra films to that sentimental good feeling. But uh uh-uh. The thing that that Capra films are so special for is they create real good feelings because they show you the darkness and and the worst side of man – just like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, except you have uh, 
like you say, for the modern man, as opposed to meet John Doe, in which there, or or a Mr. Smith goes to Washington, in which you have government corruption at mm-hmm. the highest levels, shutting down one voice speaking alone in the wilderness. You have professional arrogance in Bill Murray, which is what we everybody has to kind of deal with every day, whether you go to the DMV or or no matter where you are, you're dealing with that on a constant basis of somebody who is putting you in your place, of somebody who's undercutting your humanity. And Groundhog Day is a film about humanity. It's very difficult, very difficult to take on the real questions of life, which is why we always have to do movies about the real questions about robots. <laughs> you, you know, Transformer yeah. films, because very few people have the guts or the wisdom to take on real questions. Yeah, no kidding. You know, you know it's one reason why I love another side note, uh, Night of the Iguana, uh, both the play and the movie. There are always these plays and movies where the, quote, poet shows up and he's working on his great lifetime work. And as an audience, we never hear it. We never see it because the playwright or screenwriter could never write it. But in Night of the Iguana, the poet who comes to stay at the end actually recites the great poem before he dies. He dies the next morning. But Tennessee Williams lets us hear the poem. And you know, it's great. (laughs) It's absolutely great. And I, I, if you haven't seen the film, folks out there, see Night of the Iguana, absolute must-see. Okay. I'd be remiss in not asking what it was like when you receive a screenplay written by Christopher Nolan and his brother. Christopher Nolan is probably one of our most downloaded episodes for good reason, too, because talk about somebody who wants to ask big questions the nature of you know the nature of identity and memory. This might be my favorite performance that you've given. Not only because it's just so convincing, it's heartbreaking when all is revealed. And to this day, Memento remains probably my favorite Christopher Nolan film. And I'm just curious, you know, what was it like working with with him? Yeah, the the first thing about reading the script, it was a gigantic script. And so I figured uh, this probably isn't going to be too good because usually when scripts are that big, it means they're overwritten. Hmm. So I sat upstairs and I started reading this script and I stopped in the middle and Annie, my wife, came upstairs and she says, how is it? Does it stink? And I looked at her and I said, I'm scared to death. Right now, this could be the best script I've ever read and I pray God. You know he's going to ruin it. You know he's going to ruin it. I, it's just going to kill me when I get to Act 3 and it's going to be ruined. And <laughs> she left me alone. I continued to read. I got to the end of the script and threw it across the room. And Anne came running upstairs and said, he ruined it, right? I said, no, it's the best script I've ever read. <laughs> I called up my agent and said, I have to go in on this. I have to I have to go in and and read meet meet him for Werner Brandis not Werner Brandis uh, uh Jenkins Sam, yeah, Sammy, Sammy Jenkins right. I I had the other one on my brain Sammy Jenkins 
And I went in and I saw Chris and he said, well, you know, Stephen, there's not anything really for you to read as Sammy Jenkins. There's not a lot to read. And I said to Chris, I said, I I can't read Sammy Jenkins, but I'm here to tell you this. Besides this being the best screenplay I've ever read, you will have so many people come in this room who will want to be in this movie. But I will be the only one that you will see that actually has had amnesia in their life. Mm. So I know what amnesia is, and I can play it. And I had surgery for a kidney stone in which they gave me an experimental drug that did not put me to sleep but made me forget the pain, kind of like, kind of like a bad relationship in a needle. And, and I would be in my living room with an empty glass in my hand as if I was born that second. And I did not know if I had drunk the water and was taking it back to the kitchen, or if I was thirsty and going to get water. Or worse, I would be standing in the bathroom, you know, holding little Steve over the toilet and be standing there, and I would not know if I had gone pee-pee or was waiting. And finally, Anne, my wife, yelled, you finished 10 minutes ago. Get out, get out of there. And so I knew what that was like. And it was working on Memento was the hardest film I ever did because it made me realize the only thing that drags an actor through a scene is what they used to say jokingly is your motivation. Mm-hmm. And when you can't remember what you're doing, your mo- you have no motivation. So I had to trust just to float in the scene and just to have no notion of what I was doing and to carry it through. And Chris was getting coverage on it. So I had to not only not remember what I was doing, but remember what I was doing for when he shot from different angles. So it became the most difficult movie I ever did. But it's certainly one of the films I am most proud of. It is such an exquisite film. Beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And Again, best script ever, Chris Nolan, you know, one of the great directors ever. It was terrific working with him. Again, that's another one of those movies when I walked out of it, I went, man, yeah. that is a true original. <sighs> well, Stephen, I can, man, we could just talk for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> but, but your extensive career and your extraordinary career, for sure. And uh, I encourage everyone to track down uh, Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party, which I uh, learned about through one of the people responsible for turning me into a movie freak, Nick DiGilio. Oh, yeah. Nick. Yeah. Love that guy. Love him. Love him. So, and everybody, I mentioned this earlier, too. Be sure to download every episode of The Tobolowski Files for some of the very best life experiences and stories that I've ever heard. And um, briefly, I also know that you started a recent uh, Kickstarter campaign for a new project that you're working on with David Chen. That's exciting. We're going to do a a concert film of me doing stories at a big show in Seattle. I think it's like Saturday, May 3rd. If you're in Seattle, look it up. We're going to be at the Moore Theater, be part of the movie. But yeah, the Kickstarter is the primary instinct. If you look at the Kickstarter uh, Come and throw us throw us a little support. One dollar, five dollars, ten dollars. It all helps, and it all every penny of it goes into the movie, and none of it uh, 
goes into my uh, vacation pad in the Barbados. <laughs> Again, it's been wonderful to follow your work for all these years, and I cannot wait for more. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for your performances and so many movies that mean a lot to me. And I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you, Jim. Hi, my name is Werner Brandon. My voice is my passport verified. Needle-nose Ned, Ned the head, come on, buddy, Case Western High! We went to the Wynwood Theater, and we saw The Creature Walks Among Us, and I was probably too young to have seen a monster film like that, but it made such an enormous impression on me. So, for your movie going list besides night of the iguana put on their creature walks among us uh you'll see the man in the creature suit but (laughs) see if it has the effect on you it had on me